previously on American Jihadi. Christoph. Yeah, Christoph is still alive, man. Just got bloody bullets in the neck. How's your neck? Where you were shot? Are you, are you okay? Are you wounded? I always told him to just be a man of honor and stick to his principles. Dina, I really want you to look into what's going on here and follow the news. I want you to look deeper into this religion because it's possible we will never meet again in this life. And I want you to be my neighbor in the next. Sorry to bring this up. Yeah, like on his, like his throat, you slight his, cut his throat? Yeah, basically. What did you think when you watched it? Well, I thought I did a pretty good job. I mean, like, uh, the guy didn't, didn't go through any pain or anything, so I'm happy about that. It was about 7 o'clock in the morning, and I picked up the phone, and he was like, have you heard your son has been killed? Nine days after Abdi Gadane's men killed Omar Hamami in Somalia, Gadane sent masked gunmen into a shopping mall in Kenya, armed with grenades and AK-47s. Shots and explosions are heard inside the busy, upscale Westgate shopping mall in Nairobi, Kenya. Panicked families called out to one another as shots echoed through the halls. The men moved from floor to floor in the mall, killing at least 67 people and injuring around 200 others. This footage has emerged of shoppers in the Nakumat supermarket trying to find cover among the aisles. Al-Shabaab live-tweeted the whole thing, doing their best to control the story. The attack in Nairobi is one of the biggest Al-Shabaab has carried out outside Somalia. I got called into the office that day to prepare a story about the attack. On a monitor in the newsroom, I watched live reports from the scene. Kenya's Red Cross says another nine bodies have been brought out from the building. Al-Shabaab said it carried out the attack in what it said was retributive justice. A wave of panic washed over me. In that moment, I was overpowered by the fear that I somehow should have known that this is what Gadane had been planning all along. That whatever I thought I was doing with Omar, it meant nothing if I wasn't able to warn the world that something like this was coming. The story of Omar didn't end when he died. Every time Al-Shabaab carried out an attack, every time I read a story about Somalia, every time my phone would ring in the middle of the night, Omar would take over my brain. He was a ghost I could never entirely shake free of. For the people who had known Omar their whole lives, for his family, the problem of how to move on from someone like Omar was infinitely more complicated. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode 8. Epilogue. The day after Omar died, I had flown to Alabama to see his parents, Deborah and Shafiq. We sat together around their kitchen table, looking at old photos of Omar. They told me that someone from the FBI had contacted them to tell them that Omar was dead. The agent said a man from al-Shabaab had reached out, unsuccessfully, to collect the $5 million bounty the State Department had put on Omar. In the weeks and months that followed, the fact that Omar had been on the most wanted terrorist list made the process of grieving that much harder. That's my son. I love my son. He made bad choices. I didn't lead him that way. Both Deborah and Shafiq mostly processed their grief alone. I was asleep one night, and I heard him call me just so clearly, like, Mom! 
But I think it's just uh, maybe in your subconscious from time to time you wake up and you think, I just wish I could talk to him for a few minutes, you know, or go have coffee. And then you realize it's it's not going to happen. It's a waste of talent, waste of uh, humanity, waste of everything. For Shafiq, what comfort he could find came from his understanding of the Islamic idea of al-Qadr, destiny. It's all preordained. So nothing I could have done, either you or anybody else, to change it. That's what God wanted him at that very moment, to be at that very spot for someone to come and kill him. So I cannot blame his stupid actions or uh, any decisions that rightly or wrongly he made. It's preordained to unfold that way. Shafiq spent more and more time at his mosque. Deborah gave herself two weeks, and then she went back to her job as a substitute teacher. The teachers had already told the children, Miss Deborah will probably be crying all day. So just give her a hug and be kind to her. That day when I came back, all the teachers were lined up, and they all hugged me and told me how sorry they were. And then every kid that came by, I was just crying and crying. Omar's sister, Dina, wasn't close with her parents. She had moved out when she was 16 and lived five hours away. She felt a pull to be with her family, but she was anxious about how it would go. Yeah, I definitely went home, but I don't feel like it was like immediately. It's not like there was a funeral. There was no body to bury. Omar's remains were never returned from Somalia. At the house, Shafiq reminded Dina that Omar had always wanted her to become Muslim, too. My dad basically said if I ever wanted to see my brother again, that I would have to convert to Islam to, like, see him in heaven. So. (laughs) That was a little raw. Mixed with her grief was real anger at her brother. He wanted to be there and wanted to stay there. Like this was still like kind of a game or like a, oh, like this is cool. Dina was in the middle of getting a divorce when her brother died. She had to figure out alone how to explain to her kids who their uncle Omar had been. It was hard because they're young and they don't understand. like, why he's not here. I told them that someone killed him. (laughs) And then he got shot. (laughs) I guess I want them to understand that it was like, (laughs) not a natural death or like, that it was difficult. Um, 
I don't know. I should probably talk about him more than I do. It's just hard. In the fall of 2013, about a month after Omar died, his old high school started offering Arabic classes, and a fight spilled out into the local papers. One man was quoted as saying, it is not just another language, it is a language of a religion of hate. Another man said he was worried about producing another Omar Hamami. For Shafiq, it was painful to watch the community that had largely welcomed him as a young Syrian immigrant harden against his religion. He worked to raise money to add a school building to his local mosque. Again, there was opposition. Residents from the Ridgefield community showed up in droves at today's city council meeting to appeal a project that would rebuild and expand a mosque and Muslim school in their Westmobile neighborhood. My objections have nothing to do with religion, but everything to do with living in the community. Shafiq told me that people opposed the project because he was involved, and they didn't want the father of a terrorist building a school in their neighborhood. When we interviewed J.M. Berger, the terrorism analyst who had gotten involved with Omar in a similar way to me, he expressed a lot of what I felt about Omar's life and my life with Omar. I don't think that his story would have had a happy ending uh, if he had lived on. And, and, you know, I don't think it probably would have been a good thing for the world if he had lived on or succeeded in his dreams. However much meaning I had hoped to find in Omar's story, the longer I sat with it, the more I understood it as mostly a story about futility. I mean, it was kind of made me angry that he had wasted his life on nothing. I mean, he didn't even ultimately really achieve what he wanted to achieve as a bad guy. Maybe he could have made a difference in, in the world in a good way, and instead he attached himself to a cause that was terrible, and then not only did was the cause terrible, but they turned on him and killed him. The group that Omar committed his life to and then was killed by still exists. Al-Shabaab's leader, Abdi Ghadane, was killed by an American drone in 2014, but the group's ability to carry out horrific acts of violence remains strong. Two years ago, they detonated a car bomb in the center of Mogadishu, killing more than 500 people. It was the largest terrorist attack in African history. Not long after Omar was killed, I stopped working on the magazine story I'd started writing about him. Whenever I looked too closely at his life and the way he died, I got caught in a kind of hopelessness that I didn't know how to write my way out of. I remember my editor telling me that Omar's death gave my story a natural ending. But that didn't sit right with me. It took me six years to find an ending that I could live with. This is Al-Iman Academy, means the Academy of Faith, or Faith Academy. Last year, Shafiq took me on a tour of the school he had helped build at his mosque. He had to get the Department of Justice involved, but he ended up winning his fight with the city council. This is the fifth and sixth grade. He swelled with real pride as he showed me each classroom. I mean, I cry every year at graduation. I hand out the diplomas. 
it, it just it just brings me to tears. When I see those kids, you know, happy and, and learning and advancing in life, it just, it just makes me so happy. Omar's sister Dina has gotten remarried. She lives with her two kids and spends her days working with veterans at the VA. And Deborah has become a fixture in my life. For the past six years, about once a week, we talk on the phone or leave each other voicemails. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. The years start coming faster after 40. When I got remarried last year, I invited Deborah and Shafiq to come meet my new wife, Carolyn. Chris, stop. We're coming to the wedding. We're coming. I'm so excited. When we talk on the phone, it's usually not about anything. You would have approved of uh, uh, Carolyn's cooking the other night. She made she made a casserole, um, Southern style. The kinds of conversations you have just to let the other person know you want to know about their life. Sorry, say what? Did she put some cheese in it? Oh, lots of cheese. Three kinds of cheese. Oh, yes. That yeah. sounds yummy. She jokes that she's become my Southern mom. Y'all be careful and tell Carolyn I said y'all can eat leftovers tonight. <laughs> okay, will do. <sighs> okay, thank you, Christoph. Bye, have a good night. Bye-bye, you too. Omar once told me to tell his father that if Omar was killed, Shafiq would need to take care of his children. Omar left behind seven kids from four different wives. His oldest daughter, who was born in Egypt, lives in Canada now. One son is in a refugee camp in Kenya. The five others are in Somalia, which makes things complicated. Even if Shafiq could get to them, none of them have passports or birth certificates to prove who they are. There also isn't a U.S. embassy or consulate in Somalia, and getting them to the U.S. is unlikely given who their father was. But Deborah and Shafiq speak to them by phone or Skype as often as they can. They speak mostly Somali. So they know a little Arabic, so Shafiq usually speaks with them. And I've learned a few Somali words to say, I love you. I think it's Tahay. Tahay Jeklahay. For Deborah and Shafiq, their grandkids are the last ties they have to the son they lost. I see a lot of uh, his mannerisms and a lot of his uh, spirit and personality and smartness and beauty in them because some of them are really amazingly like him i mean especially his older daughter i mean i, I can just see omar talking when she you know she's so much like him so i think through them it gives me hope and brings me joy because if I didn't have them, I would be so lost. I couldn't make it. So that's one good thing Amor did do. He gave me a lot of love through the grandkids. American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel, of Hidden Door Media. 
Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business Affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions, Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. <laughs>